Well, greetings, brethren. It's good to be with you once again. You can open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. I'm going to keep my word. I told you once we got to chapter 6, I was going to begin the series in Mark. We're, we're not done with, with Galatians, but uh, I'm hoping to preach Mark once a month until we finish Galatians. And I was encouraging to hear some of you did the homework of Mark 16.7 and discovered the manner in which Jesus gently restored Peter. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's going to be the extent of how far we get. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Father, thank You that we have redemption through His blood. As we just read, that we have found acceptance in this most beloved One. Lord, that we have an inheritance that we've obtained through Him, in Him. Lord, just marvelous truths. And and Lord, we have to sadly confess, Lord, we want to be impacted by it more. And Lord, I I pray You'd help help us be greater gripped with the magnitude of what You've just done on the other side of the world. Lord, praise Your holy name. Thank You, Lord, for answering prayer. Thank You, Lord, for... Lord, it ended up being 11 people baptized. Lord, praise Your holy name. We thank You, Lord. Thank You we could enter into the joy of our dear brethren there. And Lord, what a, what a joyous day it is indeed for them. So Lord, now as we look upon this blessed record of Your Son, we pray, Lord, You'd meet with us, help us, grant liberty, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so if you were in Mark's day and you just happened upon your hands happened to grab hold of this original papyrus or parchment that Mark that held Mark's ink, and you were to read this opening statement in that day, you would have been blown away by such a remark as this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You would have thought one of two things. This is the most ridiculous nonsense you've ever heard. Or this is the most incredible news you've ever heard. This is a radical claim that Mark makes here. One that sounds far too good to be true. And and brethren, really still is today. However, you know, we're, we're so steeped with our theological understanding that we really don't think too much of it. We read it. We believe it to be true. And maybe even yawn at it, but or worse, laugh at it, reject it. But this is quite the revelation here. But before I get into any more of that about this opening statement, I want to I want to spend our time um, primarily uh, just making some prelim- preliminary introductory comments about this gospel, and then we'll wrap up with the remainder of our time looking at this verse, this declaration of Mark. So first off, why Mark's Gospel? Why have I determined we're going to look at Mark's this book as to be the next book we go through as a church? 
Well, number one, why not? <laughs> um, I've committed to preaching through books in the Bible in expository fashion, so why, why not the Gospel of Mark? Months ago, I did, as I was praying about this, uh, I felt led to start preaching through Mark, and, and you know some of the following reasons that contribute to that. Number two, because Jesus Christ, brethren, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And as such, He is the object we need to keep coming back to time and time and time again. He is the one that we need our eyes fixed upon, our faith fixed upon. He is the object of our faith. And it is in His face that we see and we understand God's glory. There it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're told as we behold the glory of God, we're being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. And yes, that can happen in other books we study. Of course, we just looked at Ephesians chapter 1, right? How much of Christ is in that passage? Yes, how much more in the Gospels? One of the reasons behind my choice of going through Galatians was the ease by which the Gospel can become corrupted. And how easily law can subtly replace Spirit-led living, birthed by genuine Gospel grace. And I've sought to point that out throughout the series. And we've had some real-life examples of it in our midst. And brethren, I see that more and more way back in the days, early 90s, before Reformed theology was even a known thing, in the internet, way, way before the days of the internet, I, I've watched this transform Reformed theology greatly, as it's greatly expanded its acceptance and its footprint over the last 20 plus years, largely due to the internet. How people can get so easily enamored with intellectual stimulation and prideful over theological understanding. And, and that can actually be the drawing card to Reformed theology or the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, whatever label you want to use. But if it's nothing more than an intellectual puzzle to solve, scratches your cerebral itch for learning more, then the Gospel is likely going to bore you to tears. I remember we had a guy when I was at community, a guy who was very intelligent. He was first introduced to all this. He was just eating it all up, consuming it all up. Then when he got fully saturated with it, he began to get very bored and he'd be there sitting in services sleeping and eventually he just drifted away from the church. Brethren, I see, I see an ever-growing danger in the church at large today. And it really runs parallel to our culture, a culture that's just thankless and entitled culture that so, just has so much and yet can't find any satisfaction. I fear that can be true of the church, including ourselves. I mean, we're spoiled rotten with access. We have, we have access to, 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 go, you know, to, to magazines, to articles, to the internet. We have messages. We've can, we can, we can we can, we got resources coming out of our ears. Countless resources on subjects galore. We could just consume that and that and that and that. Just, but how much of it has actually changed us and/or the world around us? Well, it makes us experts, but how much of it has changed us? Hey, the world, you know, the world's running to drugs and sex and, and various platforms of entertainment for the next buzz, the next high. What are we running to? 
Is it this one Mark introduces here to us in Mark 1, verse 1? See, Christians can run to their favorite preacher and get all lathered up and then they can study this doctrine and that issue. And, but how life-changing is it? How transformative is it really? I mean, what does it actually do for your soul? What does it do for the glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of His kingdom? And when we live in this information age, it is a blessing. It is a privilege, the age we live in. I mean, you want to know something? You've you got endless possibilities of finding answers. But you know what? We can easily become knowledge junkies. Knowing this, knowing that, knowing things that really don't matter at the end of the day. You know, it's just scratching one inquisitive itch after the other, and yet our hearts be a thousand miles away from this, this one in verse 1 here. B.B. Warfield says, one of the dangers of theological education is that the radical glories of the Gospel become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. And losing your sense of awe, you lose your thankfulness. And in losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. And in losing worship, you are just a step away from idolatry. I think B.B. Warfield nails it on the head. And we're talking about a man who lived most of his life in the 19th century. Lord, help us. Well, number four, reason why we're going to go through Mark, and this, this Gospel is particularly dear to me. There's three particular texts in this Gospel that the Lord used providentially in my own life and vital seasons of my life to aid me in my walk with Him. So, I mean, it certainly has a personal appeal to me, which is kind of tied to this fifth point. I've been, I've been wanting for 20 years now, 20 years plus, to create an evangelistic Bible study booklet on Mark's Gospel consisting of 16 studies, um, a chapter covered per study, that has questions aimed at trying to get folks to interact with the main themes here of Mark's Gospel in hopes that God would use that in drawing them to Himself. That's been a long-standing desire. And from what, I, from what I can discern, it's still a need or at least a potentially a, a very useful resource in, in seeking to reach lost people that aren't church, that don't know the lingo, that, that come from very unchurched background. Um, I just haven't seen anything like that. I think the closest that I've seen is Paul Washer's workbooks. Um, that's the closest to what I've seen and what I'm wanting to put together. And so anyway, I hope, I pray, my plan is to, as I go through this book to, just to develop that. If you have any desktop publishing skills and you want to participate in this, I would greatly love and appreciate that. I'll provide the content. I just need help with the presentation of it. But that's something to pray about in our time with Mark. And then lastly, the last reason why I want to go through this book, I want to go through a Gospel, is my desire is that the Lord would use such a series to not only encourage our faith as, we're, as we look upon the face of Jesus Christ and are transformed through that, but also that those who are outside of Christ would come to a saving knowledge, a saving relationship to Him. That God would, through it, reveal His Son to hearts who are currently darkened and blinded and shielded and ignorant of. So, the Gospel according to Mark. You realize that the four Gospels we have, they really don't have those titles. Those are man-made titles. 
Um, but they're good titles. I mean, because this is the Gospel according to Mark. Um, some, are, some are inclined to think his, this verse, first verse is actually Mark's title. Nonetheless, this, this, this Gospel is Mark's rendition of how things played out in the life of Jesus. And let me just say to, to that, we, as all Christians do, we, we believe in the dual authorship of Scripture. That is, we believe as Paul, as Peter says there in his second letter, uh, holy men, the King James says it, holy men of God spoke, or they, or they wrote as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that's the case here with Mark. And brethren, just reading through at one time, you know as a Christian, you read this through one time, and there is a self-authenticating nature of, of this having divine origin. It is the shortest of the four Gospels. That's another contributing factor. And believed to be the first Gospel written. There was no Gospel prior to Mark setting a pen to the paper here. And you could say this is the church's first track, albeit a long one. <laughs> Pretty lengthy one, but early church's first Gospel track. But who is this Mark? And how does this Gospel come to us? How did it come to be? Where is this Mark from? I mean, he certainly wasn't one of the twelve, right? I mean, it is interesting. The Lord determined to construct half of the Gospels that He's given to us, not from men that were walking with Him for three and a half years, not of the, the, the disciples or the, any of the apostles. Only half of the Gospels came to us from those men. And suggesting why is you know, conjecture on our part, but I imagine you'd be hard-pressed to find four authors out of a group that largely consisted of fishermen, Right? I mean, no, no knock on fishermen, but let's face it, there's not too many, not too many fishermen that you think are the, you know, you'd look, to, look at them and say, that guy's an author. However, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you like He did John and like He did Peter, He can pr produce a masterpiece. And He did. But it seems rather conclusive that this Mark is the one who's referred to in Scripture as John Mark. And the first time Mark's name shows up in the New Testament is Acts 12. You can turn there. This is, the, this is the occurrence where Peter gets arrested. He's chained between two soldiers in prison, and the Lord performs this angelic jailbreak. And after escaping, Peter comes to the house of Mary, who is John or Mark's mother. Not uncommon in that day to have two names. You know, Peter, Cephas, John, Mark. Verse 12. When he realized this, that is, when Peter realized he wasn't dreaming, that the Lord actually set him free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So the, so the early church had prayer meetings at Mark's place, assuming he was still living there with his mother. So it turns out, uh, this is the original Mark's outing. And... <laughs> They didn't, they didn't implement the, the, the bacon yet, brother. <laughs> that was years to come. But, but it, he must have been an encouraging brother because uh, he, had some, he had to have some measure of gifting with, about him uh, because Paul and, and Barnabas, we find there in verse 20, 25, they had just rolled into town from Antioch to bring this uh, famine relief money and they determined after their visit, hey, let's take Mark back to Antioch with us. And so they do that. And then, of course, Mark becomes that, 
that reason, the source of the big rift that happens and the split that happens between Paul and Barnabas and in chapter 15. And we do find out in, in Colossians 4.10 that, that Mark is Barnabas' cousin. And so that likely played a part in Barnabas' pledged allegiance to Mark. We also find Paul referencing Mark in his letters or Paul, rather, uh, referencing Mark in his letters to Philemon and, and Timothy, affirming that he was a co-laborer with him. In, Paul, in fact, Paul's last known letter, which was Second Timothy, um, he mentions that Mark is very useful to him for ministry. Apparently, Barnabas was correct about Mark. Either that or he, he grew and matured and came to a place of being useful. Very useful, Paul says. And then we find Peter mentioning Mark at the end of the first, his first letter, 1 Peter 5.13, where, where he closes with the greeting, she who is, who is at... He, interesting how Peter closes with a greeting, but he does. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And it seems that, that both... The designation of Babylon and calling Mark his son are their spiritual expressions, their spiritual references. I mean, Peter is referring to Mark as his son, like 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 Paul refers to Timothy as a son. And now, I mean, there's no shortage of of debate and controversy over over the term Babylon there, at least in former centuries, particularly those reformers who were former Catholics. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into that. Most scholars today believe that Peter was using select language that the Jewish minds would have clearly understood to be Rome. Uh, keep in mind, Peter was still on the run. He was still a prisoner on the run. And Babylon would have been a very familiar place of exile to the Jewish people, a place, a nation that opposed God and oppressed His people. Well, that place was in first century was, was Rome. And history does show that Jews and Christians referred to Rome as Babylon in those early church years. And there are historical records of the early church fathers that do connect Peter with Mark in Rome. Where it's believed that Peter had pastored for some time and that Mark became Peter's interpreter and recorder of the events that Peter experienced through his time with Christ. So you know, it could be the gospel according to Peter. Maybe Peter should be in parentheses. <clears throat> this is the testimony of, of Papias, who had received such information from the Apostle John, who was his contemporary and born right about the time this gospel was written. Uh, Papias was companion of, of Polycarp, who was also a student of the Apostle John. He quotes Mark's gospel. And so all, all credible early church fathers seem to affirm uh, that Mark collected these eyewitness testimonies from Peter that ultimately were used to create the gospel, this gospel of Mark. And that's also the reason why you'll find that Mark's, if you, if you compare the, uh, especially Mark, uh, Luke and Matthew, his chronology doesn't really line up. Mark's not, Mark's not so concerned with chronological events in, in his record. And so you got, you got other church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Irenaeus, 
Justin Martyr among those affirming this to be so. And, and so why are these men important? Well, because everything we believe is based on what we read in these Gospels, right? In our Bibles. And these are very reliable historical records that attribute this Gospel, which is listed second chronologically in the New Testament, as the Gospel according to Mark. And therefore, the fact he doesn't really name his, himself, he's not revealed, there's no author revealed in this Gospel account, wouldn't be the first one. There's no reason to doubt Mark's authorship. It's widely accepted throughout church history. It is believed that, that this was written somewhere in the 50s, maybe early 60s A.D. Matthew, Luke, and John would then come along and add more details, particularly of Jesus' teaching. Uh, Matthew is, has far more teaching Jesus' teaching content than, than Mark. And Luke has far more editorial comments than Mark. In fact, verse 1 here, if you turn back to verse 1, ch- chapter 1, verse 1, this is the only place where Mark actually tells us his thoughts regarding Jesus. And he does it with, with groundbreaking fashion and being the first to provide a gospel narrative and historical account of this person, Jesus Christ. And he primarily, and Mark primarily, he primarily focuses on Jesus' interaction with other people. Not so much his sayings, but his doings. And Mark, he just places Jesus before the reader time and time and time again. And he does it in epic, fast-paced, powerful fashion. That's what I like about this gospel. In fact, it's presented it's presented in a way you'd expect a missionary to. I mean, Mark was a missionary. And he was, a, he was one that seemed to like the element of surprise. He liked hitting us with the unexpected. And one of the ways he does this, <laughs> he, he uses the word, I don't know if you've ever caught this, he uses the word immediately 36 times in his gospel. I mean, I, I wrote it down. I can't remember what it was, but the other gospels, I mean, you got like four or five... <laughs> Mark 36 times. I had I had Caleb do some number crunching or program crunching. I don't know, some kind of crunching anyway. He was able to get all of Mark's gospel in a word count of all, all the words, the frequencies of those words used. And, you know, while Jesus kind of jumps out at 94 times, that would be somewhat expected, right? But But immediately, 36 times. Good night, Mark. But that search was helpful in identifying some of the themes, some of the common persons, places, things that Mark gives a lot of ink to that could possibly go unnoticed. I'll bring some of those out going forward. But another way you can pick up on themes in any given letter or book in the Bible is to try to read the whole thing in one setting or at least one day. And in doing that with Mark, one of the things I really never noticed before and it popped up today actually, in Ryan's preaching, is the number of times that the number of times that Jesus goes out of his way to keep himself hidden, to, to intentionally hide his identity and even keep his truth on, on, on the low. Let's look at this. Chapter one, verse forty-two. I mean, Jesus just heals a leper. I mean, Matthew or uh, Ryan was preaching about this, and immediately the leprosy left him. Verse forty-two, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And he went out and began to talk freely about it. 
chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus just heals numerous folks. He casts out some demons. And in verse 11, he says, and whenever, or the narrative, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Chapter 4, verse 11. The disciples and others, they're inquiring about Jesus' teaching method. You know, you're teaching with parables. What's going on with this? And he says to them in verse 11, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear and not understand lest they should Turn and be forgiven. I don't know about you, but that is a frightening text. This isn't in your court. This ought to make you feel desperate for God to reveal truth to you. Chapter 7. Jesus heals a man in chapter 7. A deaf man. And He tells him and those that are witnessing this thing in verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And then in chapter 8, this is a pivotal chapter, right after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, we're told in verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. About him, rather. And then finally, chapter 9, verse 30, Mark records this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. More on that in a minute. But my, one would think, the beginning of the Gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's go declare this on the housetops. Let's go into the cities. Let's declare this glorious news. And I mean, that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're aiming to do. Why isn't Jesus? Why, why isn't Jesus seeking the same thing? Well, I think there's a reason why all of these instances except one occurs in the first half of Mark's Gospel in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's because Jesus actually was seeking to operate under the radar uh, because His time was not yet. His time to die was not yet. And he needed to somewhat gauge the attention that he was receiving in order to fully carry out his purposes until the appointed time. And yet, even though he issues the warnings as we read, I mean, saying, don't say anything, it wasn't always honored, was it? And we'll talk about that when we get to those specific verses. But Mark's Gospel can basically be broke down in three acts if we want to talk in terms of a drama or a play. Act 1 is the introduction of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Primarily capturing His ministry in and throughout Galilee. This section covers chapters 1 through chapter 8, verse 26. And then Act 2 captures Jesus' travel from Galilee to Jerusalem covering chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 10. And that portion of Mark's Gospel serves as a pivotal transition point of the story where Jesus confronts His disciples in Mark 8, 27. He says, 
Who do people say that I am? And Peter, by divine revelation, says, You are the Christ. And he was right. But even so, brethren, he did not fully understand, comprehend what he was saying. And that comes to light throughout the second act on their travel. During their travel, three times Jesus states in 8.31, 9.31, and 10.33, Jesus states He's going to be put to death and He would rise again the third day. And, and this, this disciples just didn't get it. Brethren, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the scary realities that jumped out to me in preparing for this series is how the disciples' familiarity with Jesus served to harden their heart, not soften it. Time and time again, He has to correct them and rebuke them for their unbelief, for their pride. I mean, the first time He tells them what's going to happen, He's going to die, Peter pulls him aside and starts to correct him. That was a big mistake. Mind you, they've been with them for three years at this point. When the, when the, when he, these, these three occurrences, they'd already been with them for three years. And the second time he tells them their hardness was such they didn't understand, they're too afraid to ask. We just read that one. And then the third time, apparently, Jesus' repetition just became white noise because they, they couldn't even hear him because they were too preoccupied about talking about their greatness amongst one another. All three of those responses occur in that, those two and a half chapters of Mark's second act. Well, last week I, I, I read through Mark. In, in one sitting and then listened to the whole thing a couple times. And I noticed not just the relationship between the disciples' familiarity related to hardness of heart, but seeing this as a general dynamic that plays itself out throughout this Gospel. I mean, there may be some exceptions, but what you find is the more familiar people are with Jesus and or the prophetic truth that He came to fulfill, the more familiar people were with that, the more hardened they were, more resistant they were, the more unbelieving they were. And the more distant and far people were from Jesus, you know, the, the ignorant Gentiles, the, the, the cast-off lepers, the, the demon-possessed people, those, who, those people readily received Christ and believed what He said and consequently were caught up with His person. They were enamored with Him. And, and none of these folks were theological giants. None of them. Meanwhile, those who would be considered to be insiders to Judaism got the oracles. They got the truth. They got the prophets. You know, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the theological experts, along with his own family members, nobody knew Jesus like his own family members. Hardened. Blind. Rather than worshiping the Christ, they're asking for signs. That in conjunction with his own disciples in one reading, I wish I had another word to say besides sobering Frightening. That's, that's the word that comes to me. And this leads us to Act 3, starting in chapter 11, which 
picks up the last week of Jesus' life, which basically covers the last one-third of Mark's Gospel. And this section is essentially revealing to us how Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, what that entails, how he manifests or establishes his Messiahship, and it was like no one expected him to. It would not be until Jesus reaches the cross where people would truly understand who he was. And brethren, of all things, the proclamation was made by a Gentile Roman centurion. Where in Mark 15.39, as he observes Jesus take his last breath, he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. An outsider, an enemy, Mark reveals, is the first person to put this thing together. And understand that the Jesus they just put to death was indeed the king that was being declared on the placard hanging over his head. That this guy is the Son of God. A Roman soldier comes to see and understand that. Understand what's being proclaimed here in verse 1. That's pretty mind-blowing. So yeah, brethren, keep preaching the Gospel downtown. And let's keep declaring this Christ because if He's able to convince a completely heathen, immoral, unchurched guard who would have been very ignorant of the Jewish customs and religion and heritage, if God can convince that guy that He was looking at the Son of God, the Lord is able and capable of convincing the most backward and ignorant of sinners that Jesus is the Christ and that indeed He is the Son of God and that He is worthy of losing everything to have. That, that centurion seems to epitomize what I was saying earlier about those who are far off. And he foreshadows the, the, the expansive worldwide purposes of Jesus' atonement. It was intended for the ends of the earth, not just the Jewish people. In fact, more so the Gentiles who we discover in Scripture to be the true Jews. Those who trust Christ, that is. Well, the beginning of the Gospel. There, there seems to be an allusion here to the beginning of Genesis. Like John, but in much abbreviated fashion, uh, Mark draws this connection between this one he's about to introduce us to and the one whom we're met with when we open up the Bible's first page and read its first sentence, in the beginning, God. Maybe John got his idea to start off the way he did from Mark. We, we don't know. But what we do know, brethren, is this statement alone is one, was one for the ages. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is the revelation of revelations. And this statement is packed with so much theological wonder. It's, it's monumental. This short little sentence is packed with all kinds of, of Gospel truth. It's all about this one person from head to toe, from beginning to end, and we're going to spend the rest of Mark unpacking it. No doubt Mark is suggesting this beginning is just as creative and mind-blowing and supernatural as the creation of the world. And as the world was created out of nothing, so is the new creation out of nothing. Actually, less than nothing. Actually, that which is opposed to God. That which is sinful. That which is opposed to Him and corrupt. In the beginning of the Gospel, 
Euangelion is, is, is the word gospel. Glad tidings, good, joyful news. And the good news is God is now creating a new world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And hallelujah, we've been brought into it. I mean, brethren, this is, this is what humanity has been in desperate need of ever since that snake slithered its way out of that garden scene. And this is what this fallen world has been starving for. Creation has been long awaiting. This is the best news. It's the best news because it's news of deliverance from deceit and from disease and from demons and from death all in one. That's who this Jesus Christ is. He's come to invade time and space and to set things right. This God who, this God who dwells in unapproachable light, brethren that cannot be contained, who spoke constellations like Orion and Pleiades into existence. He hung the sun. He hung the moon. There they are. They're spinning around each other and spinning individually and they're just flawlessly doing, orbiting around the space just like God told them to and they're doing it perfectly. And only to make, that's just one galaxy. Then we find out there's trillions upon trillions of other galaxies. That God suddenly made physical intangible in the womb of a fallen woman. That God experiencing human birth, experiencing being nursed by a fallen woman at a mother's breast, dependent upon a mother. That God needing His diaper changed. That God who is real flesh and blood who had real human hands that were limited in the things that he could carry. He had real feet like you and me who, who touched the surface of this earth. That God who's when he skinned his knee and, and, and pain came to his body, he would cry. That God coughing when the wind would blow up dust in his face. That God comes to earth bringing with Him all the hope a hopeless humanity could ever dream of possessing. Bearing upon His shoulders the greatest weight that could ever be laid upon anyone our crimes against Him. Brethren, the ruler of all nature, this is the bright morning star, the Lord of the nations, coming to make me His enemy, His friend. I mean, that's, that's the beginning of some very, very good news. That God, Mark says, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What humility. He made Himself nothing for you. Just Jesus. Do you know, Jesus was a fairly common name in His day. That's why he gets dubbed Jesus of Nazareth to distinguish him from the other men named Jesus. I mean, for, for such a God as that to, to be named something so common. But this name Jesus was given to him by God because of what it stands for. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, stands for Jehovah saves, the Lord is salvation. So the Gospel begins with a Savior. But not just a Savior. He is Jesus Christ, 
the Christ, meaning the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the heir to David's throne. Jesus fulfilled over 300 messianic promises in the Old Testament. And he did so, as the Hebrew writer says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ came as a prophet, a priest, and a king. He came as a son of God. I mean, who would dare claim such a thing? I mean, to be a man, and yet a deity? Claim yourself a deity. That's Mark's claim here. The Son of God. I mean, there's no, there's no soft lead-in here. No warm-up, no build-up. I love that about Mark. It's just like, he comes out of the gate, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It reminds me in the boxing realm, I don't know how familiar you are with boxing. I used to be into it when I was younger, but it reminds me of Mike Tyson. I mean, most boxers, you get in the ring, you kind of dance around a few rounds, you throw a few jabs, you're trying to size the other guy out. Tyson would be, is just waiting for the ring, the bell to go off because he's going to knock your head off. I mean, he just comes right out of there ready to deliver a haymaker. And, let's, and, and, and let me tell you, 98% of the time, if he connected, you were on the canvas. And so Mark, in similar fashion, ding, I got great news for you. Jesus Christ and him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, just like that. Starting off with a bang. And what's interesting is, is this claim of, of this gospel that Mark makes here, he only makes it once, right here. And then we have the Father testifying to this at the baptism and then, and then the mountain of transfiguration. And that is affirmed three more times in Mark's gospel. Twice by demons. They knew, they knew who he was. And then finally, this, this centurion, as he gazes at the Lord Jesus. And, and the centurion serves as a bookmark from the opening statement to the centurion, truly this man was the Son of God, is the Son of God. So, so in one short sentence, Mark gives us, brethren, the answer to the world's greatest problem. God's ultimate answer for humanity is not to give us a set of laws to follow. It's not give us religious rites to perform in order to make up for all the, the many sins that we commit. Or to provide some, some wise self-help remedies. The answer that God gives is Himself. Offering Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brethren, who will remain that way, the God-man, forever? That is incredible. Not just to come down and satisfy the sin situation, but to remain that way forever. Astounding. Lord, break us free from any kind of familiarity with this. It would just cause our hearts to be calloused and hardened like the disciples of old in hearing and contemplating these most wonderful realities. Lord, win us afresh. Forgive us for any measure of apathy and basking in such favor, brethren, such promises, such glory, such honor that's yours and mine. You, you hear that when we read? The inheritance is past tense. You have it. It's not going to be yours. It's yours right now. Well, I want to close here um, appealing to those of you who have never been anything but apathetic towards this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's proven in your knowledge of Him, 
and yet refusal to bow the knee to Him and warmly embrace Him as your Lord and Savior? Listen, there's nothing more serious in your life than this right now. There's not. And you cannot afford to ignore this Jesus. He will not allow you to be neutral about Him. He won't. The Gospel demands a response. There's nothing neutral about the Gospel. It must be responded to. You must decide. And you must determine, I will follow this man or I will live the rest of my life maybe playing religion, but rejecting Him essentially. I mean, with Christ, it's all in or all out. There's no in-between, no half-heartedness, no halfway in His kingdom. And you do and you will respond either way. You see, you must. Because you must face Him. There's no avoiding this. It is the most certain thing about you. You might get that promotion. You might get a clean bill of health for now. You might make it to your next birthday. That's that's possible. You might see next week. But you will see Jesus face to face. It's going to happen. And of all people, you will stand before this One, this glorious Savior, and give an account for everything that you've heard. For having faced Him in His Gospel and setting under His truth. Having heard this wonderful declaration of Mark. Having heard how wonderful and gracious a Savior Jesus is. And yet, it's not enough to hear it only. Hearing doesn't save anyone. You must act upon it. Having heard how sufficient His atoning work is for sinners, how, how, fully satis- how He fully satisfied everything necessary to make you faultless and righteous before His throne, you, you have to actually surrender your self-will to Him. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. You have to take up whatever cross He's pleased to, for you to bear and you to follow Him by faith. Trusting only in His blood and His righteousness. You dare not trust anything else save Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, the, the Gospel is wonderful, but the Gospel's scary. It is. Because it confronts you head on. It comes right at you and confronts your deepest thoughts. It touches the deepest part of who you are. It strips you before an Almighty God. And it reveals the true you. It confronts your true motives, your true desires. It tells you He is it and you must face Him. He is the one with whom you have to do. Without Him, you're utterly hopeless. And listen, we're... We're a long way off from Mark 14.21 where Jesus says of Judas, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. Jesus said that. Why did He say that? Because to know Jesus, even to know about Him and reject Him is to hate Him. And the future for those who hate Christ is so grim, so horrible, so nightmarish 
that it would be better if you, if you had never existed. It really would. You don't want to know about Jesus Christ and face Him a rejecter. You, you, it's a horrid... Ab- I can't even paint the picture for you how absolutely terrifying that existence is going to be. And justly so. Please hear me. You, no, you, you may not be Judas, but I think I can accurately and faithfully say the same thing is true for you. Those of you who have sat under the Word, heard this glorious Gospel countless times, know the truth, and have never sub- submitted yourself to it. To Him. To leave this life in such a condition, with such a testimony, it would be better for you that you'd never been born, that you never heard about Jesus. It would be better. Jesus says that of Judas. And listen, you know far more truth than Judas ever dreamed of knowing about Jesus. It's true. You You have the full revelation. Father, I pray that You would have mercy in our midst. Lord, that this glorious Savior that Mark proclaims, well, like Adrian said in the first hour, Lord, we can't explain the glory. We can't. Our efforts are vain trying to reveal the reality of Your glory. But Lord, You can show it and You do to those whom it pleases You. Lord, these things You said the secret of the kingdom has been revealed to those that are Yours. Lord, I pray You'd reveal such secret today. Have mercy, open eyes, deliver people from their blindness and their love for sin and their, Lord, just being swallowed up in all their darkness. Lord, that the light would burst forth and you'd have mercy upon souls. Well, we ask it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.